the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. You can hear the program each weekday afternoon from 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. AM 560 WFIL, WFIL.com. Welcome to the Tim DeMoss Show. I want to welcome Holly Schrock aboard. Hello, Holly. Hello, Tim. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of your afternoon. I know you're a busy person. Yes, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Claritas, do I say it properly? Claritas or Claritas? Uh, we say Claritas. Claritas. Yes, Claritas Classical Academy. So not to be confused with Claritas, like I, like Rita's water ice. That's what my daughter would no, think. No, no, <laughs> don't serve water ice. <laughs> Claritas <laughs> ClassicalAcademy.com. People can find out about it. I, I've known you for a number of years, partly because our family – uh, has homeschooled our five children much of the time, not all of the time. We've had public school time. We've had uh, homeschool or uh, you know internet only kind of a thing. Talk a little bit about uh, Claritas Classical Academy, just where it came from. How old is it? Uh, I want to put this out there for people just to know that there are other options for them as they consider their children's education. Sure. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Tim. Um, Claritas has been around. We're in in our seventh year, actually, and. Okay. Um, we have about 110 students, and uh, we meet in Bryn Mawr, um, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And um, our focus, um, we really meet a need for families um, who have a mind to homeschool but um, would like to have some more structure. So um, some people call this a university model. We don't technically um, use that term because um, it's trademarked, but that's what some people, you know, kind of – um, resonates with them. It, it is like a college setting in that you take classes two days a week and then three days a week you're um, studying at home. And um, for younger students, that's obviously a pretty parent-intensive um, studying at home. We require, you know, our families are technically homeschoolers. So um, mom or dad or someone is at home with um, their children completing assignments on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we are, um, the, the program is, is very specific. So we have an online system that um, indicates all of the assignments and really holds the parent's hand. Um, the idea is that we're partnering with parents to help them achieve an excellent education. And um, in our case, that's a classical and Christian education. So um, it really comes back to a focus on the great book. And we are focused on uh, what we you know, would, would consider the true, the good, and the beautiful. So our students are reading um, great books or living books, sometimes people call them. Um, so we do a lot of our learning based off of um, solid literature and um, history and, and um, obviously our, you know, as, as many people would expect with a classical education, our students are studying Latin. Um, our younger students do a lot of memorization um, and singing and that sort of thing. Um, but really our goal is to assist parents um, in their efforts to achieve 
a rigorous uh, classical and Christian education. Yeah, that sounds great. That's a great explanation, Holly Schrock. And I'm not surprised, being the executive director, you would know what's going on with Claritas Classical Academy. Uh, and again, folks can find out more about it, Claritas Classical Academy. Dot com. Um, and it's actually because we've homeschooled, like I mentioned, so many over the years. I think it's interesting. It's, it's a step closer to rigor, as you say, because sometimes people who homeschool or who want to feel like, wow, to be home every day, like, where do I start? This sounds like it could be a, yeah. a, a good like. Uh, okay, that'll help me feel like I can make it through because I'm going to have this yeah. in and out days. Well, it's really a big help for people, especially um, those who are deciding to pull their students out of um, a public school or even a Christian school for whatever reason. Um, and, and they are afraid to try to step out into homeschooling on their own. Um, we are a great resource because there, there just are there's so much to choose from in the way of curriculum and options and, and what path do I do? How do I do this? How do I achieve it? How do I make sure that my students are getting what they need in fifth grade or in eighth grade? Or how do I even teach my children trigonometry or chemistry? And that is what this is, is here for. So we have um, teachers, we call them tutors at Claritas because um, they're meant to really be assisting parents in, in their um, home educating goals. But um, they these people come in and really teach the material, and then the parents are um, there to help along the, the way at home. Yeah. So you, you're not stuck trying to teach calculus or, um, you know, right. whatever, chemistry, biology, all of those subjects that, that many of us have a hard time remembering from high school. Yes, so, <laughs> right. Yeah. The early stuff, maybe the very elementary of in those topics, you might be like, I think I can help with that after a while. You feel like you're over yeah. your head. One other yeah, quick thing yeah. for you, because I know the stereotype for, for us, people like we say we're homeschooled, we usually get the response either like, wow, like that sounds cool or interesting or, you know, I wish I could do that. I've thought about that. Other people wonder if our kids are in their pajamas all day and yeah. uh, don't really do too much. Well, our kids wear a uniform on Tuesday and Thursday, but they can be in their pajamas on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, if they want, <laughs> depending on their home. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. But let me ask you this, because uh, part of the, I know as my wife and I have worked on this over the years, every year is a new year, and we kind of sometimes uh, continue with something we were doing the year before and then add another piece or take something out. Part of what Claritas uh, offers is uh, some extra things, right? Like that extracurriculars is, a, yes, is something that people like. Mm -hmm. So what are, yeah. what are a couple of things that people could look for? Um, well, they, we do offer beyond just a standard academic courses. We do also offer music for younger students and art for all of our students. And then um, after school, we have they're, they're really considered more um, similar to a club or yeah. something because, you know, it's not uh, competitive. We're not in any leagues or anything like that. But we yeah. do have a cross-country club, and we have karate, and we also have classical ballet. Nice. Um, we've offered other things, you know, at different times. And, and right now we also have an art club after school as well as art during the school day. So, yeah, um, yeah so they do. There's, it's a little bit. Um, that's all actually all included in tuition even. And, uh, we do that just because it's, you know, for homeschoolers, one of the things that is, is a big help is one stop shopping. A lot of our families have a lot of children. And so to be able to just come in and, um, have 
school all day and then also benefit from karate or classical ballet or, you know, um, the opportunity to run with friends or whatever is a, is a big help. Yeah, so that's absolutely. Part of it. Yep. Well, yeah. I know uh, it's been a pleasure chat with you for a few minutes. I know uh, on your site, one reason why you're a nice uh, tie in today with our previous guest, uh, Professor Dreisbach from American University. Uh, you mentioned, like many of America's founding fathers, you believe a classical education prepares and equips children to lead. And that's part of what Clarita, uh, Claritas is all about. So uh, he was talking about the uh, Declaration of Independence and that kind of thing. Yes. So, um, yeah, so that's great. Well, people want to find out more if they like to, as they're investigating things, maybe they're, they're doing all right, with, right for now, but they want options in the future. Uh, they can just go to your site or do, do, do people ever come midstream during the semester? Or is it usually a January they do. thing? I do actually enroll students mid-year. Depending, it just depends on yeah. uh, which grade and whether we have room. But yeah, we do it sometimes. Um, okay. Generally enroll a few students mid-year. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you, Holly. Right. Well, thanks so much, Ken. You're welcome. Have a great rest of the day. All right. Uh, you uh, too. Bye-bye. It's Holly Schrock from uh, Claritas Classical Academy. You can find out more about them online, claritasclassicalacademy.com. It's the Tim DeMoss Show. Don't go away. We'll be right back on AM560, WFIL, and WFIL.com. You're listening to a podcast of the Tim DeMoss Show, heard weekday afternoons 4 till 5 on AM560, WFIL, and at WFIL.com. AM560, WFIL, WFIL.com. Listening to The Tim DeMoss Show. Thank you for tuning in. Talking to Not One, Season 16 contestant on The Voice, Rebecca Howell. Hello, Rebecca. How are you? Thanks for being a part of things. I'm doing great. How are you? Wonderful. Well, you you had a wonderful uh, experience, and I guess Kelly and Blake, and after a while, John Legend all hit their buttons. So talk about what that was like to go through watching that unfold, especially... Kelly and Blake were kind of close together, and then after a while, John jumped in near the very end of the song, right? So talk about how that felt to watch that, you know, as a, as a performer. What are you hoping for, and is it easier to see the back of the chair, or once they've turned around, that takes some pressure off, and now you can go forward even more easily? Well, um, you know, starting out, I thought I would be, like, really extremely nervous, but I actually walked out on the stage, and I felt really comfortable and, uh, you know, I started singing, and really, Kelly turned right off the bat, pretty much. I got a few lines out, and it was like she turned around. And I remember when I saw the chair come around, just immediately being like, okay, don't look at her eyes. Because mm. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to, like, see her and then completely freak out and just, like, mess up my song. So I saw her, and I acknowledged that she turned, and then I was like, okay, look to the crowd. And so um, I kept singing, you know, and then Blake turned, and... You know, it just was, it was an unreal feeling. I was like, oh, gosh, okay, so there's two. Keep going, keep going. And then I don't know if you noticed, but, like, in the video, I didn't even know I did this, but um, when John turned, I just had this big smile come across my face. Absolutely. And I think it was because, <laughs> I think it was because in that moment, you know, like, John is, is like, R&B, kind of, like, soulful, and I really didn't expect him to turn for me because, yeah. you know, I'm country, and so... Like, I don't know, just having even John Legend turn around for me, being a country artist, was really, I don't know, it, it just made me feel really good. Like, you know, even though I'm not in his genre necessarily, he still thought, wow, this girl is really good. And I don't know, it just made me feel really good about myself. But yeah, it definitely was an amazing feeling seeing those chairs turn. Chatting with Rebecca Howe uh, with The Voice, I literally wrote down, it seemed you had a big smile on your face after John hit his button just near the end of the song. So I definitely saw that, what you just said. That really must have been quite a thing, partly also because, you know, to have another judge jump in near the end of the song is like, okay, now I have even 
more options. Although, did you go in kind of thinking I, I'd like to go with Kelly if that's where it goes, or Blake? Those are those are big heavyweights to you know to choose between. Yeah. Um, so going into blind um, auditions, I had originally. I know, like, everybody's like, okay, Blake Shelton is obviously who she's going to go with because he's country, she's country, that's who she needs to go with. But I really was thinking, you know, maybe I should expand more, you know, as an artist. Like, I think Kelly has, you know, she's done all different kinds of genres, and she's crossed lines, and she doesn't just stay in one place. And and I love that about her, and I think she has just such a big, powerful voice. And um, as a female, you know, country artist who has, you know, more of a powerful voice. I really wanted to work with another strong female like that and just kind of get her guidance and stuff. And I know, you know, Blake has um, a lot of uh, experience in country music, but I also feel like Kelly does too have some experience in country music, and I think she could help me grow the most as an artist. So when I was deciding, um, she was always kind of from the beginning who I really wanted to go with. But in that moment, let me tell you, it is so difficult (laughs) because, you know, you're just standing there, and, like, all these people are pitching you these ideas. And I'll tell you right now, John Legend is a smooth talker. Oh, yeah. He is very smooth. It was really hard. Well, to your point about wanting to maybe expand a little bit, that was his message to you. Like, I know I'm not the, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Country over here, but I think I can work with you. And he complimented you. And I could see if that's where your mind already was with Kelly, you might start thinking – well, maybe John has a point here, and maybe I can stretch even further. So at minimum, it's flattering, obviously. And then how much time do you really have to decide? You only have those few seconds, really, right? Yeah, you're just standing, um, and you have, like, very like a couple seconds yet to decide what you want to do. And I really, honestly, like, it was really in that moment between John and Kelly for me. And I think what really sold me to just go with my gut and originally with Kelly was one that she was the very first person to turn for me right off the bat. Yeah. So that was that was a really um, big, I guess, player when it comes to like why I chose her. And two, I just think her personality is so fun. Mm-hmm. Like she's literally the nicest, like coolest person. And I think her energy is just so fun. And I thought that would just be so cool to work with. So yeah. I think that's really why I kind of just went with her over John. But I believe, you know, John would have been an amazing coach. Oh, any of them really, obviously to have that, to have that level mm-hmm. of coaching from anybody would be great. Rebecca Howell with the voice is with us. She chose Kelly uh, to be her uh, coach to move forward with, uh, but you've been singing for a lot of years. And I know uh, I'm always interested in hearing people's story. I understand that you were doing some singing when you were in, in grade school in a competition, and that kind of helped propel things to maybe realize maybe there's more I could do with this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I sang with uh, Georgia 4-H. I don't know if you know what 4-H is. A lot of people don't know. Um, it's like a, a club that's really big in Georgia yeah. and um, kind of agricultural leadership-based. But I performed a lot with them. Um, they have these competitions every year at the National Fair in Georgia and um, another big competition just through the, the club. And um, every single year, I competed in both of those competitions. And so, you know, I kind of was was used to just, like, being a part of a competition, like, singing against other people. And I think that kind of did help me to be prepared, you know, to what it's like to be in a singing competition. Share about your grandmother, too. I understand she's a big supporter for you and, and recently passed away. But talk about that relationship, if you would. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, so I was extremely um, close with my granny. And um, she passed away in 2017, just uh, very mm. sudden. It, we were not expecting it at all. Mm, sorry and um, 
Yeah, so it was really hard. Honestly, one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through. At the time, I had never lost anyone, and so she was honestly like she basically raised me like she kept me every day after school and stuff from my parents and just was pretty much like that that third parent that was like there every single day and she just you know out of the blue got sick and it was two three months later she was gone and we just weren't prepared for it and she was always at everything I didn't go to a single singing competition show choir performance one act performance that she wasn't at and then you know, it's like right there at the beginning of my senior year, and she's just not there anymore. That's a gift. It's just weird because, you know, you look out in the audience and they're not there. And at the same time, you know, you know that she, she is in the sense that she really invested in you. To have that support all those years, you know, you carry that with you. It's a, it's a part of who you are and why you're able to do what you do. So, yeah. And I understand, too, that you uh, spend time singing at your church, or that's what's coming up in the future for you, part of doing some worship leading? Uh, at church. My kids are involved in our worship band at our church, so I'm just curious what you what your ties are to that. So my dad is actually a pastor, Okay. and so um, I started out singing in church yeah. uh, before 4-H, <laughs> so wow. I was singing in church, that's where I got started. Um, and then this past year, uh, my senior year of high school, a pastor came to me from Christ Chapel, Cochrane, where I live at, yeah. and uh, asked me if I'd like to fill in as worship leader. So uh-huh. for the past few months, I've been uh, leading worship at Christ Chapel, Cochrane, where I live. That's cool. If schedule permitting, you'd like to do that for a little while? Yeah, I love leading worship. You know, I mean, I love using my talents, you know, for God, and I think um, it's been a great opportunity to, like, grow even in that aspect as an artist. Like, it's really helped me, I don't know, just being in front of people singing every Sunday and stuff, I think definitely prepared me even more for this moment. So, yeah, I love it. Well, God bless you, Rebecca. One day at a time to enjoy the ride and just keep walking with God. He'll take you wherever, you know, he's got good plans for you. And uh, however far you go, you know, that it's he's God's good. So I'm sure you know that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Thanks for taking time. Good to make your acquaintance. Well, it was nice to speak with you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for checking out the Tim DeMoss Show. We're here weekday afternoons, 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast with AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. You're listening to AM 560 WFIL, Tim DeMoss, Tim DeMoss Show. We shift our attention now to a couple of special in-studio guests. David Peterson lives in Montgomery County, originally from Detroit. His wife, Andre, works for uh, World Magazine, among other things. Andre Peterson, Andre, how do you say it? Andre Sue Peterson. Sue Peterson. You guys are local and have a great story to tell. And so I want to encourage people in their faith with what God has been at work in in your lives, uh, individually, collectively. Uh, with a focus on David and your, your how God has delivered you from uh, some serious drug addiction and, and challenges in your life. So I'm aware of some of the, your story, but I want to learn as you're talking too. You can start wherever, whatever is a good point. You know, even just growing up, did you grow up, you know, going to church or knowing anything about the Lord and, and where yeah. to from there? Yeah, I did actually. Uh, grew up in the church, okay. Baptist, raised Baptist, raised in a fairly conservative Christian home. From the outside, you would think that all was well. But in fact, there was something missing, even as a young child, even in my church experience. I accepted the Lord formally, I guess you could say, uh, at 10 years old. But even before that, I'd always believed as long as I 
I had known the name of Jesus. I believed in, in Jesus. So I can't pinpoint a, a particular time when I was saved per se, but I did go forward at 10 years old. But that church experience, as good as it was in grounding me in uh, things biblical, was missing something. And I, I guess it was a really vital personal relationship with Jesus. Hmm. Maybe from the age of 13 or 14, my interests started turning elsewhere from, you know, youth group activities and that kind of thing to things more, oh, you might say transcendental or spiritual outside of or beyond the, the Christian experience. Like spiritually, just looking for other ways to satisfy, you know, your yes. spiritual curiosity yeah. or what the meaning of life was? Or? There was an, I, I had an emptiness, Tim, inside me that I was acutely aware of something missing. So I looked into Eastern religions, philosophy, transcendental meditation, uh, Buddhism, a, a number of things. This in your teenage this years? This is teenage or? years, yes. Wow. That's yeah. a lot for a teenager to be, you know, already searching in those directions. That's quite a bit. Yes, yeah. it was. It was something that not many of my friends had interest in. Okay. But for me, I would just, I guess, a, a seeker but looking for something that would satisfy, something that would fill me, hmm. that would make my existence have meaning or purpose. Now, I believed in God. I didn't necessarily connect this longing with not being properly in, connected in, so. right yeah in a right relationship with god interesting um so i would you know pray usually in times of peril or uh, distress or whatever but i didn't look to god to fill that emptiness that missing component in my life did you have anybody in your life uh, at uh, at that time that was maybe trying to point in that direction because some of the story could be, where was everybody? <laughs> or if you, you know what I mean? It, yes. It's a wake up call. That's people a, don't assume everyone's, you know, doing fine. Maybe speak up periodically. That's right. That's a good point. And no, there really wasn't. Uh, our youth group was run by an older gentleman mm -hmm. that really had no, no connection with. Hmm. And there really wasn't much outreach. I don't want to blame the church, but... I would say that for what was happening in the culture at that time, the sexual revolution and the drug revolution and the explosion of, of alternative lifestyles and alternative religions, the church really wasn't equipped at that time, I'm talking mid yeah. to late 60s now. Were you still going to youth group even as you were exploring all the other things too? Yeah, it's about the time that I dropped out of youth group. Okay. Yeah, maybe around 13, 14 years old. Uh, at the time I was 15, so we're talking late 60s now. Yeah. I became aware or introduced to the drug scene that was happening all around everyone in, in the 60s. Mm. And this seemed to me like maybe the thing that I was missing. Wow. I remember reading a, it was either a Life magazine or Look or one of those old magazines back in the day that had an article on LSD and the person being interviewed in it 
a drug user said, I, I took this little pill and saw God. And so wow. I thought, wow, how easy could that be? Instead of the disciplines at the time that I'm looking at, which was Buddhism and, and transcendental meditation and other things that really were a discipline, and you had to put your whole self into it. And here was, you know, an alternative where you could just drop a pill and be in the presence of, of God. So this really excited me. I bet a lot of people, if that, if that was happening today, would be like, because I think underneath there is that hunger, right? Yes. People, if you yep. told the average person you could take this pill and no. Yes. Well, they might not. There's also that part of it I'm afraid of what I might find out. But there's still that, really? I could? Yes. So that spoke to you that, wow, that's quite a thing. Yeah, and, and there was a, something in the air at that time, and Andre can attest to that. She has her own story about those times. Uh, there was something different, something in the atmosphere that was kind of breaking forth. Maybe it was me coming of age, but it seems like beyond my own personal experience, it was a collective thing. Culturally speaking, yes. where things were going. Yes. People were becoming open to all kinds of stuff that really had never been much considered before. So mm -hmm. I fell into that. and As a teenager. As a teenager. And so by the time I'm 15 turning 16, I had discovered heroin, which was beyond all the other drugs that I had experimented with. It was the drug that best satisfied that missing component in my life. It created in me a, a feeling of well-being, uh, euphoria, uh, feeling of confidence, and just knowing that nothing can harm me. I felt totally good and comfortable and most like what I imagined my true self to be. I felt comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. And this grew into, very rapidly, a, a kind of love affair with the drug. Before long, um, the years from you know, 15, 16, going up into my 20s, it became an obsession. The drugs becomes the thing. Yes. Like that's your, not your job, but that's where your brain's at. That's right. Yeah. In order to do anything else, in order to work a job, I was working at 18, I, I got a job at Chrysler. That brought in some pretty good money for an 18-year-old kid. And yet, all the money went to one thing, other than my basic living needs. Yeah. Um, so I was still in high school when I, when I got that job. And my whole income, 80% uh, of it, went to just maintaining my drug habit. It was intertwined with my life in a way that really hard to explain because it's without the drug, I couldn't work. You become incapable of functioning, literally. And so at first, the drug makes you feel good and, and euphoric and all of that. But at, in time, it just serves to kind of get you to a state of being normal so that I can function. It gets you functional. Yeah. Without it, there is no, no doing anything else except yeah. laying around sick. And so that becomes the goal of the day before anything else. That's your number one priority. Secure some drugs for the day, hopefully for the week, but that generally wouldn't happen. Once that was taken care of, then I could go 
into the rest of the day and do my normal routine. And if it took a half hour to do that, then I had most of the day. But if it took six hours to get up the money and get the drugs, that's what I would do. I had to do. So there was a lot of calling in late for work and jumping from job to job, finding jobs that were more accommodating to my lifestyle. More on the way when the Tim DeMoss Show resumes after a brief break on AM560, WFIL, and WFIL.com. Live and local, it's the Tim DeMoss Show, weekday afternoons 4 till 5 on AM560, WFIL, and at WFIL.com. Our podcast continues. AM560 WFIL is what you're listening to. It's the Tim DeMoss Show. Thank you for tuning in. Our guests, David Peterson and Andre Sue Peterson. Andre, a columnist, actually, for World Magazine. We'll chat about that at some point. But for now, David is sharing about his search for God, his battle with drugs as a teenager in his mid-teens, late teens. Did you realize as it's happening that this is not what I started off meaning for this to be? Yes. In fact, I realized that quite early on. But at that point, it was almost too late because of an overdose, which was suspected to be a, an attempt at suicide. I was put into a, an institution for a while. How old were you, Ben? What do you call it? Uh, this Maybe was, 20? yeah, I was 20, 21. And so they did an evaluation for two weeks, as it turned out. But at the time that I was admitted, I, I didn't know how long I would be in there. And no one else did either. And after two weeks of probing and prodding on the psychiatric side of things, the psychiatrist said, David, we're going to release you, but I have to talk to you about your addiction. He said, in Western society, heroin is a real taboo. This is something that is not accepted in your culture the government is against it. You end up in prison for it. It is rejected by society. And he said, and yet, the fact is that now that you are an addict, he said, you will always be an addict. He said, there's no cure for this. And so what you need to do is become familiar with what you need, the minimum you need to maintain, and don't overdo it. Rather than the drug controlling you, you control your use. Now, this is, wow. to, by today's standards, you know, this, this is crazy. But this is what he told me. Essentially, you're doomed to a life sentence. And so you need, need to know how to maintain this addiction because you never get out of it. Wow. That's and that was the best thing that he had to offer. This was not so disturbing or depressive to me, uh, depressing, but rather, I guess it caused me a, a kind of defiance. Huh. And I, I made the, the inner vow, so to speak, that I will be the one who determines when I quit and when and if I use again. Now, I had withdrawn uh, during the time that I was locked up in this institution. Right. So I wasn't physically addicted at this point. Two weeks was enough to, to get over the, the withdrawal. But I was still psychologically, I was still addicted. And that's one of the most 
potent problems with drug addiction, cocaine or heroin or, or opioids. You can be free physically of the drug, but still be in bondage to it psychologically. Chat with David Peterson, who's uh, sharing his story of God's work in his life. And uh, in terms of drug addiction, from the, we've, we've heard about kind of now building up to, all right, now you're in your 20s. and Well, the next chapter is composed of year after year after year of pretty much repeating the same cycle. Uh, run-ins with the law, periods of incarceration, loss of jobs, loss of friends in some instances. And and then there would be something that would come along in my life that would cause a, a rejection of this lifestyle. And it would be different things. I, uh, usually a person that presented something to me that was an alternative and and I would get clean for a while some months was able to rededicate myself to the Lord and uh, live as I had hoped to live but even when I was clean not using drugs for a period of oh three four six months I was still battling this psychological thing. For instance, I went to Bible school uh, in a period and got out of the Detroit area, went down to Texas. Even down there, while I'm going through these classes during the day and uh, devotions in the morning and going through the, the whole Christian style, interacting only with other Christians pretty much because that's who was on campus and teachers. And even during that time, I was still fighting this compulsion or obsession, maybe is a better word for it, where I couldn't stop thinking Hmm. about either reviewing what my drug experiences were like, kind of reliving the glory days, so to speak, or thinking about the future. Like, is it possible I might be able to get some drugs? And eventually that's what happened. And it was a trap, really, of Satan. It was just a setup for me. I pulled in to turn around because I had passed the entrance to the Bible college I was at. I pulled into an apartment building to turn around to uh, go back. And I pulled up into a parking spot to do my turnaround. And right as I pulled up there, a guy came out of the door. He came out and walked right up to the car and he said, what can I do for you? Hmm. He thought I was a drug customer and this turned out to be a drug house without even thinking. I I knew what it was when when that happened. So it was a total, a total trap. And before I really even realized what was going on, I was pulling money out of my wallet and paying them off for some, in that case, cocaine. And that sent me right back into this spiral downward and ended up uh, leaving the, the Bible Institute yeah. without completion and uh, coming back to Detroit in just a kind of broken, defeated way again and back into my addiction. And So this was just repeated time and time again. Treatment, houses that I had gone through, Counseling with psychologists, 
AA, NA, all these various means that I tried always, you know, they led to some short term of sobriety, but I always ended up back where where I'd been before. Uh, Sometimes you hear people say you have to hit rock bottom before getting out of a bad situation. Uh, I'm not sure that has to be the case or that hitting rock bottom actually guarantees anything. Was there a bottom for you? Yeah, well, sometimes it's a matter of hitting the bottom and then just bouncing time and time and time again off off the bottom without it really bringing about the, you know, the recovery that one typically hears of after somebody is bottomed out. I was at the bottom more times, literally more times than I could even recall at a loss of, of everything in my life, anything that was important in that moment would swear that I'm done. I'm over. I'm through and sick and tired of being sick and tired. And yet that wasn't enough. My willpower uh, was not enough to pull me out of the power that this addiction had on me. It affects the way you think, the things you think about, the way you behave. It developed in me a lying mentality and became a really repulsive person. More on the way when the Tim DeMoss Show resumes after a brief break on AM560 WFIL and WFIL.com. Have a guest you'd like to hear on the Tim DeMoss Show on AM560 WFIL? Email D at WFIL.com. AM560 WFIL and WFIL.com. Chatting with David Peterson and his wife, Andre Sue Peterson. What finally broke through? Any main thing that? That there was shined a light, if you will, on yes, I had married uh, back in the early eighties, so for twenty years I lived with my wife and four children, but because of my influence, my wife became an addict as well, wow. and so we struggled together for decades, trying to hold a family together, four children driving around, trying to scam up money, go get the drugs with little kids in the back seat, going to the dope house, being in some of the worst neighborhoods in Detroit. It was just what I had to do to keep going. And at this point, what we had to do, the two of us. After 20 years, she had finally had enough. She left me and went into a inpatient recovery house, got very involved with AA, and ended up getting sober and staying sober and divorcing me. And this was probably the most devastating thing that had happened to me up to that point and started using more and more multiple times daily. And the addiction just became a a mountain of weight on me. And I was having, I was living up in the UP of Michigan, and having drugs mailed up, UPS, uh, up to the Upper Peninsula from Detroit every other day. Well, it turned out my connection uh, got arrested or something, and I couldn't get through to him. And so the, the supply got cut off completely. And so I did a, a crazy thing, something that I had thought about any number of times, but never had the nerve to do it. But I decided 
the only way I'm going to get enough drugs to be okay for a while is to go where the drugs are, which was a pharmacy, and take them myself. And so I got a gun and didn't load it with bullets because I didn't want anyone to be hurt, didn't want any potential of someone being hurt. Anyway, long story short, I ended up robbing them of their narcotic supply and didn't even bother to empty the till. I took no money or anything else, which I could have done. I'm there robbing a, a store. Why not at least yeah. take some cash too? But I didn't. I didn't care about that. I just was there for the drugs. That's what I needed. By the time I was arrested the next day, they took me over to uh, emergency and I was put into the intensive care unit because of multi, multi-substance overdose. I had taken so many different drugs that uh, I was just about overdosed yeah. or was in a state of overdose, but I, I didn't realize it at the time. Wow. So when I finally came to, I was cuffed to the gurney yeah. that I was laying on and taken to, to jail. Did that prove to be the turning point? Something really wonderful and dramatic happened in my life. And this is what I could consider truly my bottoming out was when I found myself in a a solitary confinement in this little county jail up north with nothing. My wife had gone. I had lost the house I was living in. So my kids were gone out of my life, everything I had lost, and I'm looking at a potential of, of life. Wow. But I knew I was looking at a long stretch of time, uh, maybe 20 years is what the, the prosecutor was recommending. And I ended up in the county jail for a year, just awaiting my trial. Wow. And they held me in solitary confinement the whole time, stripped down because... I had tried at one point to uh, end things and no blanket or sheet, just a mat that I was laying on, on concrete. So seven months like that, Tim, and the only thing I was able to get in there was a Bible that God allowed me to see myself as I truly was, this deceptive, living a lie person that I had become. It was so horrific. It was as though I saw myself laying there and God gave me a revelation, so to speak. I I guess it's the best way I can put it. A discernment to see me as he saw me Mm. with all of my, my filth. I was looking at myself and was repulsed by myself. To the point where I knew that if I was anybody else, I wouldn't want anything to do with me. And I cried out to God in that moment and said, God, I don't want to live any longer as this person. And if I have to live another day as that person, I want out. I can't go on. This is it. And it was a not so much a prayer as a demand, <laughs> Like, this was, this was it. I can't do this anymore. I'd like to say some great bolt of lightning happened and I was a changed person, but it didn't happen like that. What happened was that 
in about three, four days, I became aware for the first time that I haven't been thinking about obsessing like, like I always would about drugs or using them or longing for them. Mm. There was, that was just gone. And I didn't even realize it, like I said, for three or four days, maybe. So the days went on. And as they did, I just spent more and more time with the Lord. I mean, there was no one else. And so it was just an ongoing conversation of my spirit, interacting with God's spirit. It started out as prayer, as petitioning God for this and that and making kind of promises and deals and stuff. But after a while, all that fell away and it just became the sweet communion between my maker and, and me. And that was really the turning point for me. I ended up with a 12-year uh, a 12 year excuse me, a 12 to 22 year sentence with the first 12 years being mandatory. I couldn't even see the parole board until the minimum, the 12 year was 12 years. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. And so ended up going to prison. And it was then that I came to know my, my wife uh, through a correspondence that we struck up, through the magazine that she wrote for. World Magazine. Yeah. yeah. And Andre hasn't said a, a word this whole time. <laughs> she's supporting you, just hanging. Yeah, she's just... <laughs> but so you were there for 12, for, in, for 12 you, you years. You did a 12-year sentence. And yes. so God got, broke through on the in the beginning of those 12 years. Yes. And so during those 12 years, your faith... Was, was growing true, straight and true kind of Beautifully, thing? yes, beautifully. Uh, well, we are we are out of time. We did not really get to delve into another whole aspect of this, especially how you and Andre met, what the Lord has done since. So uh, we're going to need to continue this chat. Uh, also, I want to remind folks, if you or somebody you know could use prayer, whether it's something serious like what David was sharing about or anything else, we have a prayer center on our website. Uh, go to WFIL.com. There's a blue bar across the top. You click the word more, then grow your faith, and then prayer center. It's open and available anytime at WFIL.com. We want people to know they're not alone, and we are glad to pray for you. So please take advantage of that. I'm Tim DeMoss, and you are listening to AM560 WFIL and WFIL.com. Thanks for listening to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. Feel free to tune in to the full show each weekday afternoon from 4 till 5 on AM560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.